Sinful people want a religion that is convenient, comfortable, cheap, and does not convict them of sin. When God intervenes in your life, be sure you learn the lessons he is teaching. Welcome to the MANA Bible Lessons Podcast. MANA is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 25, we're going to cover a couple of chapters today. And the focus of our our, uh, research today, if you will, our our lesson is going to be on Jeroboam. So as you know, we opened a study in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah several weeks ago. One of the things that makes the Bible so interesting and so truthful is the Bible's absolutely honest about the characters in the Bible. I mean, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and sometimes you see it all in one person, right? So... God had warned Solomon, the wisest man in the world, that he was going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand if he did not follow God like his father David did. And at the end of his reign, he said, by the way, you have been persistently rebellious against me. You have worshipped idols and you are promoting idolatry in Israel. I'm taking it away from you, but I won't do it in your lifetime. I'm going to do it in the lifetime of your son, Rehoboam. So at the same time, God also sent his prophet Ahijah to one of Solomon's lieutenants named Jeroboam and told Jeroboam that he was going to be God's choice to be the future leader of the ten northern tribes. 1 Kings 11.31, he, quote, the prophet Ahijah said to Jeroboam, quote, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. Verse 38. Then it shall be that if you listen to me, all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, be observing my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house, as they built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So God made a conditional promise to Jeroboam. If you obey me like David did, then I will establish your family dynasty over Israel. Now, as we talked about last week when Solomon died, roughly age 60, his son Rehoboam inherited the throne, roughly age 41. However, as you recall, all Israel came to make him king, And they said, lighten the heavy load of taxation and this forced servitude, and we'll serve you. And Rehoboam thought he was large and in charge, and he said, you think you had it bad under my father? I'm going to make it so much worse, you won't even believe. I'm going to raise your taxes, I'm going to increase your servitude. And they said, hasta la vista, baby, right? Let's do a national divorce. And so the kingdom split, precisely as God promised, and the ten northern tribes anointed Jeroboam king just as God had promised. Now, you would think, you would think, right, that Jeroboam would realize, God promised me the kingdom, and he delivered the kingdom to me. Maybe I should listen to what God has to say. You would think. However, Jeroboam didn't want to govern the nation God's way. He wanted to rule his own way. We do the same thing. God says, if you follow me, here's all the goodies that will happen. If you disobey me, here's all the baddies that will happen. And we say, well, let me think about it. Let me think about it. You know, when God makes promises, they always come to pass. Have you noticed? So I would say rely on God's word because it happens 100% of the time. So the very first thing Jeroboam did not do was pray and ask God's wisdom and protection. You would think taking over the kingdom from your father, it might be a time to have a prayer meeting to start this endeavor, but 
No, Jeroboam, that's not what he did. The very first thing he did was to fortify the key cities of Shechem and Penuel against foreign attacks. So he took matters in his own hand. And the second thing he did is he started to talk to himself. Now, many of us talk to ourselves. And at the time, the self-talk seems brilliant. But if you talk to yourself out loud and other people listen to what you are saying, they may have a different opinion about the brilliance of that self-talk. Maybe your dog thinks you're brilliant no matter what you say, but anyway. So I want you to notice Jeroboam's self-talk, and it's based on fear, not faith. Jeroboam says in 1 Kings 12, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. Verse 27, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Jeroboam, king of Judah. Here's the principle. Rejecting God's promises leads to fear, which tempts us to depend on our own plans. Rejecting God's promises leads to fear, which tempts us to depend on our own plans. So Jeroboam's overriding interest was not doing God's will. Jeroboam's overriding interest was maintaining his grip on power. Even though God had said, if you govern my way, I will ensure that you retain the kingdom, which is amazing. And Jeroboam didn't want to rule God's way. He didn't want to have to obey God to stay in power. So he devised a plan to maintain his rule without obeying God. Now, he'd spent enough time in Egypt. Remember, he was in Egypt for a number of years when Solomon was trying to kill him. And he observed how the Egyptians used religion as political leverage to control their subjects. This is not new. Rulers have been doing this for centuries. It's millennia. The religious system of Israel was established by God at Mount Sinai uh, in the peninsula down there uh, in the time of Moses. The temple, which was the result of that, the tabernacle first in the temple, was located in Jerusalem. I want you to know where Jerusalem is located. It's below the line, right? It is in the nation of Judah, not Israel. The Levitical priesthood was God's given program for Israel's sacrificial system. And God had commanded all Israelite males to go to the temple in Jerusalem three times a year to sacrifice. And Jeroboam says, if the Israelites in the ten northern tribes obey God and go to Jerusalem three times a year to sacrifice, they're going across a border from northern Israel to Judah. They're going into foreign territory, and their loyalty is going to be toward Judah because that's where the temple is, and that's where Yahweh is, and that's where they go to worship. So he feared that if they go to Jerusalem, they're going to become loyal to Rehoboam, and he concluded they're then going to kill me, and you reunify the nation under Rehoboam. So he rejected God's promise that if he followed God, God would establish his rulership. And his solution was to establish his own religion in northern Israel that would discourage the people from northern Israel to traveling to Jerusalem to worship. So he's going to make a whole series of religious reforms, and all of them were designed to lead the people away from the Lord and loyal to himself. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 28. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, to the northern Israelites, quote, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one golden calf up in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted the feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah, and he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he instituted the feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. 
So Jeroboam is creating his own religion. And it's a copycat of the true religion in Judah. Here's the principle. Sinful people want a religion that is convenient, comfortable, cheap, and does not convict them of sin. Sin, Is that not true? Of course it is. Sinful people want a religion, and they'll declare loyalty to a religion as long as it is convenient, comfortable, cheap, and no conviction of sin. Now, Jeroboam didn't want to follow God, so he sets up his own religion as a means to keep himself in power. He's using religion for political purposes. Imagine that, right? Now, the first change he made was in religious symbols. Instead of the temple and the ark, which are in Judah, in Jerusalem, Jeroboam sets up two golden caps. One in Bethel, on the southern border. Rob's going to show you that map again. Between Israel and Judah, Bethel is just north of the dividing borderline. It's in Israel, but barely, right? 20, 30 miles. And the other one, way up in the north, up by modern-day Lebanon, that's the, the tribe of Dan was always the northernmost tribe. So he's got them covered. He's got a golden calf in Bethel on the way to Judah, southern part of the kingdom, and he's got a calf in Dan way up in the north. He justified this new religion to the people on the basis of convenience. You don't need to pilgrimage all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. It's more convenient, comfortable to worship God by staying in northern Israel. And I've got two sites for you. You don't have to drive very far, walk very far. You know, it's you know, this convenient, right? It's close. And they're air-conditioned besides. So in the summertime, you know, you don't, you know. You would be amazed at the number of people who won't show up if there's not air conditioning. Just saying, right? A lot of people won't come because it's too far to walk in the parking lot. Truth. Parking lots are very, very important for people to show up to church or not show up to church. It's a very big deal. So he told Israel, these calves are your gods who brought you out from the land of Egypt. What he's saying is these golden calves represent Yahweh, the God of Israel. The calves were visual aids to help the people in the worship of Yahweh. Now, we have been doing this for centuries, right? We have icons. Some churches are very symbolical, ritualistic, and there's all sorts of images in a variety of churches to, quote, help you visualize who God is. Now, I want you to remember that Aaron, Moses' brother, got himself in really deep doo-doo at the foot of Mount Sinai when he built him a golden calf, and he said, Israel This is your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. And God told Moses, I wanted to destroy him, but if you hadn't prayed for him, I would have destroyed him, right? God harshly judged Israel for worshiping this golden calf. Now, Jeroboam creates two golden calves, and he builds shrines. means he builds houses for these golden calf idols. It says he built multiple shrines in the high places where other idols were worshipped. So the core of this man-made religion is idolatry. Idolatry is a very, very big deal to God. As a matter of fact, it made the top ten. First one is, you shall have no other gods before me. What's the second one? You shall not make for yourself an idol. Period. Is that clear? Got it. God hates idolatry. And you say, well, what's the big deal with idolatry? God hates idolatry because any man-made image of God distorts and diminishes him. No one has seen God at any time. So all images of God are corrupted by what? Human sin. The creature, us, makes God in an image that we think of him. And our imagination is what? Corrupted by sin. It's fallen. Idols are so wicked because they always misrepresent God. And they always give people a false concept of who God is. God always wants people to know who he really is like. He wants you and I to have an accurate picture of who he is. And where does that come from? From the Bible. Who wants to give you a false picture of who God is? Satan wants to give you a distorted view of who God is so you don't follow him. He did that to Eve and immediately said, has God said, in other words, God doesn't keep his word, 
God's lied to you. If you eat the fruit, you'll become like God. God's holding out on you. So he immediately began to attack God's character based on his own sinful preconceptions. Now, in that era, calves and bulls were often used as statutory idols because of the idea of their power. You know, a bull was the strongest animal at that point, and their fertility, right? There was a lot of fertility, obviously, in a bull, and so they, they thought that was what God was like. So people have always craved idols, visual representations, because they can see them. The problem is all idols corrupt your image of who God is. Now, God has told us who he is. The Bible says that faith in God comes by hearing of his word, not seeing his face or beholding his form. So idolatry is lethal to your relationship with God because it always lowers God to human level. All religions need ministers. And so Jeroboam says, well, this is a do-it-yourself religion. I'll appoint any one of you that wants to be a priest to be a priest. Matter of fact, today for 20 bucks or 5 bucks or just registering online, you too can be a minister, right? All you had to do in Jeroboam, as long as you came with one bull and seven rams, he would give you the paper or whatever it was that says you are now a priest in Jeroboam's religion. And these priests could burn incense, make sacrifice, perform religious worshipals for any worshiper who showed up at the shrine. Now, this was in direct defiance of God's plan. God had said what? Only the Levites and only the descendants of Aaron can function as priests and come into the temple of God. Jeroboam set up his own priesthood in direct defiance to God. Now, the Mosaic Law had specified seven feasts each year. The one we're talking about here is the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they took place in the seventh month in the calendar. The Jews' seventh month of the calendar, they had the Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement. Jeroboam says, well, you got a feast, I got to have a feast too. He set up an identical counterfeit feast on the eighth month, 15th day, one month later, right? So he's replicating, copycatting Judah's religion, except it's his religion, and it's absolutely opposed to everything God said. He was counting on people not wanting to travel to Judah based on cost, comfort, convenience, right? And he made his own religion, his own idols, his own temples, his own altars, his own priests, and even his own religious calendar. And we've seen this around the world. Any nation, state, or people group that wants to attack religion has got to come up with a counterfeit. I mean, the, the French in the great French Revolution, they had to worship the goddess of reason. They built temples to her. They even tried to change the Gregorian calendar. It didn't last very long. The United USSR did the same thing. They eliminated all religious feasts, and they had all these secular feasts and with all the marching bands and stuff. So they know that people want the religious symbols. We just give you a false god. Now, our world is very much like Jeroboam's. We live in what they call a pluralistic society. We live in a society where people believe truth is relative. We, believe, we live in a society where everybody believes that their own opinion is truth even though it contradicts their neighbor's opinion, which always struck me as odd. How can it be truth if it disagrees with itself? Right? Not very rational. The Bible says that truth is absolute, universally applicable, never changes because God says, my word is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This society in Jeroboam, our culture today, lives out the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, when you do that, you get chaos. That's what cultures do when they do that, and we're living that out. So Jeroboam's religion was sort of an amalgamation of a lot of different religious beliefs, but it was all based on idolatry. And he basically gave people a religious buffet. You know, come on, come and take what you want, what you don't want, don't take. But it's all cheap. That's a cheap buffet, right? <clears throat> However... God calls all human religions abominations, apostasies. The prophet Isaiah described false religions eloquently in Isaiah 8.20. He's talking about him. He says, to the law and to the testimony. The law and the testimony are here in the word of God, written down. If they, these false prophets, do not speak according to this word, God's word, it is because they have no light in them. So God told us who he is. And God told us how we can have a relationship with him in the Bible. 
all religions in the world, bar none except Judaism and Christianity, are man-sourced, man-made. Human religion, all of them, try to earn God's approval by performing good works and being a good person according to a human standard of goodness, right? At least I'm not Hitler. God will let me in. That's a great comparison, you know. Must mean you're really good, you know, if you're not Hitler, right? They believe that God will let them into heaven because they're, quote, good enough. God says what? All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. God's standard is very simple. 100% moral perfection. I've never yet met anyone who said, I meet that standard. And if I talk to their spouse, they definitely verified that that is the case, right? <laughs> or a friend. So everything done by humans to try and earn God's favor and put God in their debt, God says that's filthy rags to me. It has absolutely no meaning. It's worthless and useless. So the question is, how do people have a relationship with God? Every religion tries to answer that question, and all of them say it depends on you. The human worshiper has to do things in order to earn the favor of the God they worship. The Bible and Judaism are absolutely 100% opposed to that. Judaism is a source, and we, of course, Christianity came out of that. Jesus was a Jew. And holy God wants a relationship with sinful people. And Israel's religious system was based on sacrifice, animal sacrifice, that made atonement for human sin that separated people from God. Israel's system of animal sacrifice absolutely looked ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus. So Jesus was God's plan, God's initiative to repair this relationship, to die as the perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for human sin. When Jesus took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness, that's the exchange, God's justice was satisfied and our relationship with Christ could be reconciled. So when we place our faith in Christ's payment, by the way, that's the only thing you need to do. You don't earn it. You receive it. You place your faith in Christ's payment for your sin. God credits your spiritual account with Christ's righteousness, and he takes your sin and puts that in Christ's account. And therefore, on that basis, God can declare you and I not guilty, and we can have a relationship with God. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but by me. Now, Jeroboam knew God's way, and he rejected God's way with full knowledge. Now, the next two chapters record events that were designed by God to warn Jeroboam to turn back from his wicked ways. Pick up the narrative in chapter 13, verse 1. Now, behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, quote, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Here's the principle. God graciously warns people to stop sinning before he judges them for refusing to stop. God graciously warns people to stop sinning before he judges them for refusing to stop. Now, get the context. This is the opening day of Jeroboam's false religion. It's the eighth month, 15th day. This is a huge ceremony. He's launching his new religion, and there's large crowds here in front of this altar at Bethel. And, of course, Jeroboam made himself the priest, a priest. He's now burning incense on the altar. In the middle of this false worship, God sends a prophet, unnamed, from Judah. And this prophet pronounces doom on this altar. That was the symbol of Jeroboam's false religion was this altar. He predicted that a king of Judah named Josiah would defile this specific altar, this exact altar, by burning the bones of the false priests who were offering sacrifices on it. And jo jo Josiah would then tear down the altar and spill its ashes out. And that occurred precisely as predicted 290 years later. 
2 Kings 23, 15-16, King Josiah fulfilled this prophecy exactly. Furthermore, the prophet from Judah said, just so you know that it's God that's speaking and not me, this very day, God will supernaturally split this altar apart and the ashes are going to get poured out and you all are going to witness it. Verse 4. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Seize him! But his hand which he stretched out against him dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of God. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. If you want to see examples of God's merciful grace, there's one. Right? Here's the principle. When God intervenes in your life, be sure you learn the lessons he is teaching. You could write that one down. When God intervenes in your life, and he is intervening in your life pretty much every day, make sure you learn the lessons he is teaching. I got convicted of this. I go see the doctor. He said, your eye is doing well, but you're not very patient. I said, this is news, right? <laughs> he says, it's healing. And, you know, the, the, the temptation we have is when we get a good medical response, we thank God and we move on. I'm under conviction that's not right. Because God gives us what he gives us to teach us. So what are the lessons that I was supposed to learn from this, other than getting it fixed, which is not the lesson, by the way, And what are the lessons you're supposed to learn from the situation you're in or have been in? God has lessons he wants to teach us from stuff that happened to us 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. Are we asking God, Lord, you know, I went through a pretty tough time here 30, 30, 40 years ago, whatever. I can say that to you because that's me, you know. All these years ago, continue to teach me what you want me to learn from that experience. Why would you waste your pain? You know, you pay the tuition, for heaven's sakes, get the education, right? So you don't have to take the lesson over again. So Jeroboam's been confronted, and he could have repented, but he becomes enraged, and he stretches out his hands, he points it to the prophet, and he orders the soldiers to seize him. He's trying to demonstrate his power over the prophet of God. From Judah, he's trying to demonstrate his power to this large crowd that I'm going to shut this guy up. So God now performs two signs. One, the altar is supernaturally broken apart, just as the prophet of God said a few minutes before. And second, Jeroboam's arm is instantly paralyzed by God. Now, Jeroboam's arm, of course, represents the power of human might, and God's infinite power is represented by the paralysis of his arm. So instead of Jeroboam arresting God's prophet, God arrests Jeroboam's arm through paralysis. What's utterly interesting is every single person present in this large crowd heard the prophet from Judah's proclamation that the altar is going to get broken apart, and they saw the paralysis of Jeroboam and his arm. You think they figured out that maybe God was opposed to this stuff? I think it's pretty clear that the Lord's saying, stop it. I've spoken through this prophet, and I verified that it's me speaking because I've given you at least two supernatural signs. Now, Jeroboam's got a choice, repent or rebel. Now, he did acknowledge the power of Yahweh, but he did not submit to it. What does he do? He asks the prophet to pray to who? Yahweh, the God of Israel. For what? Heal my arm. I mean, I'd have gone, pray to your altar, dude. I mean, this God you worship, whatever it is, your idols are so strong, have him fix your arm. No, he says, prophet. Pray to God. He knows deep down that the God of Israel only has supernatural power, but he wants physical healing. He doesn't want an obedient relationship with God. And I am convicted in my own heart that many times I ask God to fix my problem. I don't say, Lord, draw me close to you, change my character, shape me like Jesus, 
Teach me what you want me to know through the problem, which is what I should be doing. Because God allows problems to make us like Jesus, right? So in a matter of minutes, Jeroboam has seen God's power three times. Broken altar, paralyzed arm, healed arm. God was teaching Jeroboam, I'm opposed to this false religion, you need to stop it, verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward, otherwise known as a bribe. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place for. So it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, quote, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came, unquote. So the prophet went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now remember, he's coming from Judah up to Bethel. He's going to go south, back across the border, to get back into Judah. Here's the principle. Refuse to compromise with evil, even when compromise is rewarded. We live in a culture where compromise is rewarded. Refuse to compromise with evil, even when the compromise is rewarded. So Jeroboam's going to try and salvage the situation. He says, you know, come on home with me and, and share a meal and a gift. Now, when you eat a meal with someone in the ancient Near East, it was a declaration of friendship, loyalty, protection, and alignment. You never ate a meal with an enemy. If you ate a meal, you were declaring alignment and friendship and support of that person. So if the prophet agreed to share a meal with Jeroboam, it would indicate to the people that Jeroboam's religion and Judah's religion, they weren't all that far apart. I mean, you know, with this guy sharing a meal, even though he you know, prophesied doom, it must not be a big deal. Compromise can be made here. Well, the prophet of God knew that, and he said, no compromise. God told me, no eat, no drink, no rest in Jerusalem. Get yourself back to Judah. This was not a pleasure trip for this prophet. He was on assignment for God, and he was inside enemy territory, and he was supposed to deliver the message and get back home. Now, there was an older prophet living in Bethel who heard of this encounter. He didn't show up to Jeroboam's ceremony, but it sounds like when you read the narrative that his sons did, and he found out from his sons the way the prophet of Judah, the route he was going back home. Verse 14. So he, the older prophet from Bethel in northern Israel, went after the man of God from Judah and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you nor go with you, nor will I eat bread from you, or nor will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place, for a command to me came to me by the word of the Lord, quote, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. Do you think the prophet from Judah was clear on what God told him to do? Yeah, yeah he's clear, right? He, the prophet from Bethel, said, I also am a prophet like you, and an angel named Moroni spoke to me by the word of the Lord. It doesn't say Moroni. I'm putting that in, right? You need to know that. Those of you that know a little bit about cults know that there is an angel Moroni. Anyway. I am also a prophet like you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he, the prophet of Judah, went back with the prophet of Bethel and ate bread with his house, in his house, and drank water. Here's the principle. Do not let anyone deceive you into disobeying God, even God's people. Maybe especially God's people. Do not let anyone deceive you into disobeying God or distract you into disobeying God, even God's people or what? An angel from heaven, as Paul said. So the old prophet from Bethel found the prophet from Judah doing what? Sitting under a tree. So this prophet from Bethel wanted fellowship with his prophet of Yahweh, and he said, come back home, share a meal with me. The prophet from Judah rejected the officer and told him that God had commanded them to do no such thing. Go home, get home immediately, don't share a meal, eat or drink. This is not a time for joy, this is not a time for fellowship, this is a work assignment. I told you to bring a message of judgment, deliver it, 
and get home and do not fellowship with these people. The prophet of Judah was already disobedient. What did God tell him to do? Keep walking back to Judah now. Where did we find him? Sitting under an oak tree. He wasn't walking back to Judah. So he put himself into temptation by being where he was not supposed to be. And we do that all the time. Sometimes we go, man, I'm always tempted. And I'm saying, well, if you're in the path where temptation goes, you know, it's going to find you. What does Psalm 1 say? Do not walk in the path of the, right? Sit in the seat of, right? I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Don't make yourself temptable. The old prophet from Bethel lied to him, and he told him that an angel appeared to him and told him that God wanted him to go home with him and share a meal. And, of course, the prophet from Judah believed the lie and went home. There's a problem with that, though. Before they eat the meal, God speaks through the prophet from Bethel, the northern prophet, and tells the prophet from Judah that because he had disobeyed God's word, he would not be buried in the tomb of his fathers. And you say, well, that's a little cryptic. It means you're going to die in a foreign land. And by the way, you're in a foreign land now. That should cause you to look over your shoulder, right? Verse 24. Now when he, the prophet from Judah, had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it, the lion also standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it to the city where the old prophet lived. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. So after the meal, the prophet from Judah rides back on the prophet's donkey south to Judah. And on the way, a lion caught him and killed him. Now God's control over this event, the supernatural control, is seen by the fact that, number one, the lion, after he killed the prophet's body, didn't attack it. Right? The lion did not uh, attack the donkey. So this lion and the donkey and the body are there apparently for an extended period of time. Because it says, passerby on the road, came by, came by, went north to Bethel and said, you won't believe it. There's a guy in the dirt, he's killed by the lion, there's a donkey standing there, and the lion's standing there too. And they've been there for maybe over an hour, and nothing's happening. It's like freeze frame, right? You know, pageant of the masters. They're just there, right? What's going on with this? It's clearly a supernatural event. It's not normal for lions to kill something and not eat it. Just saying, right? So the old prophet from Bethel immediately recognizes that the prophet from Judah had been judged by God for his disobedience and killed by the lion. A clear, clear principle, you know this. God never contradicts himself. God never changes his mind. God says what he means and means what he says. God takes his word seriously. Disobedience has consequences. In this case, death. The prophet from Judah knew exactly what God said. He repeated it to Jeroboam verbatim, and he repeated it to the prophet from Bethel verbatim. He knew exactly what it was. And God's judgment on the prophet was just. Think about it. This supernatural death for disobedience was also sending a message to who? Jeroboam, right? God always judges all sin, especially in the lives of his own people who know better. Judgment begins with the house of God, right? If God took the life of his very own prophet who had been disobedient, how much more would God judge Jeroboam who is actively leading Israel into sin. You think that was a message for Jeroboam to say, huh, another sign, maybe I should pay attention. Skip ahead a little bit. We're now further along in Jeroboam's reign. I'm going to be in chapter 14, verse 7. And it says, one day, you know, just one day, it came to pass, by the way, anytime it says it came to pass in Scripture, that's the sovereignty of God, the providence of God working. 
you know, came to pass. It just didn't happen. It came to pass because God ordained it. One day, the crown prince of Israel, Jeroboam, had a son named Abijah, and he became sick. And apparently, this was a pretty serious sickness because Jeroboam sends his wife to where? God's prophet Ahijah in Shiloh, also northern Israel, to ask him about the future of their son. I wonder why he doesn't go to the golden calves and ask for an oracle. You know what's going to happen to my son? Anytime the guy's in trouble, he actually goes to God, the true God. Now he's asking, he says to his wife, go to the prophet, but disguise yourself. So he won't know that you're my wife, but ask him about the future. What's going to happen to our son? Does that strike you as a little strange? If he's so smart he can tell the future, wouldn't he figure out that it's you? Right? Sin doesn't make sense. Even more so, Ahijah is blind. Says his eyes were dim, he can't see. So he wouldn't know anyway who it was. But it also says, God told Ahijah, there's going to be a woman coming. It's Jeroboam's wife. She's going to ask about her son. Here's what you're going to say. You're going to tell her that her son is going to die exactly at the moment she walks back into the door of her own home. When she crosses the threshold, he's gone. By the way, this son, Abijah, is the only son, the only family of Jeroboam, who God declares righteous. Apparently, he's a God-fearing son with an evil father. And God says, I'm taking him home. We think that's a tragedy. You're going to find out that was a significant blessing. And it says all Israel is going to mourn because they know this is a righteous man, a righteous son, right? Apparently he was a child. But he said, here's the sign. You walk across the door threshold, he's going to die. Now the news got worse. Let's go to chapter 14, verse 7. He tells his wife, go say to Jeroboam, quote, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart to do only that which was right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sleeps away, dung, until it is all gone. Is that a clear picture? Capiche? You got it? Right? Here's the principle. Rejecting God and refusing to repent always leads to destruction and death. Rejecting God and refusing to repent always leads to destruction and death. Now, God had told Jeroboam way back in the beginning, your rule over Israel is dependent on your obedience to me. However, God says, I'm going to give you a summary of your life. You've done more evil than Saul and David and Solomon combined. You actively led Israel to reject me. You have made false idols, and you have led them to worship false gods. One of the phrases we're going to pick up with and look at later is, over and over and over again, David is the standard of righteous rule, and he is the golden standard that God compares every king to. David is the standard. Jeroboam and after him Ahab become the standard of wickedness, and the one phrase that is attached to Jeroboam, I haven't counted that many times, but it's multiple times, Jeroboam who, quote, made Israel to sin. He led them into Sin. You know how Jesus feels about that? You know what he said about those who will lead a little child to disbelieve in him? Better you should have a millstone, 75-pound millstone attached to your neck, and we throw you into the depths of the sea, and you die 
than lead someone away from faith in me. He led an entire nation away. And in 722 BC, they all went into exile and never reassembled as a nation. That was God's judgment on them. We'll get into that. So God predicted, I want, to, I want you to take a look at how many opportunities God has given Jeroboam to repent. This morning, just in this part, what we know about. He has experienced and seen God's supernatural miracles and supernatural warnings on multiple occasions. First of all, God predicted his ascension to kingdom and then arranged for Jeroboam to be crowned king over Israel. That was supernatural. Number two, just in these chapters, the altar split apart just as prophesied. Jeroboam's arm was paralyzed and then after prayer, his arm was healed. The disobedient prophet was killed by a lion exactly as prophesied. Jeroboam's wife was identified by a blind prophet before she entered his house, and she was told the exact moment her son would die when she crossed the threshold into her home, exactly as prophesied. That's seven, just here, specific examples of God showing grace to Jeroboam, authenticating his word by means of supernatural signs, and wonders. Do you think he had opportunity to repent? Yes. Do you think we in our world have had opportunity to repent who have heard the gospel and then chosen to reject it? How much greater a salvation we have. In spite of God's many gracious warnings, Jeroboam refuses to repent. And as a result, God says, I will exterminate your entire family. Every male will be killed. None will survive. I'm going to blot out your name. Your bloodline is gone. Second Chronicles 13 records a battle in the latter part of Jeroboam's reign between Israel and Judah. And in this battle, God gave Jeroboam's army into the hands of Judah, and 500,000 Israelite troops were slaughtered by Judah's army. That is population decimation on a level that is massive. That's a good chunk of the male population of northern Israel, right? That was national judgment from God for their idolatry. And they're his people. And we think we can sin with impunity and somehow God doesn't keep score. Verse 20 records something I had never seen before, and I've probably read this passage dozens of times. It says that God struck Jeroboam and killed him. That's personal judgment for leading Israel into idolatry. 1 Kings 15, verse 27 to 30, records that Baasha, from the tribe of Issachar, conspired against Jeroboam's son Nadab, two years into his rule, kills him, takes the throne, and slaughters the entire house of Jeroboam. He did not leave any heir alive, exactly as promised by the Lord. And the only one who got buried was Abijah, who God took because he was righteous. Now, take that back. That's Brad's opinion. I don't, don't, don't take that to the bank. I can't say God took him because Abijah was righteous. God took him because God is righteous. And his sovereign will was that. But God calls him righteous. He avoided being slaughtered only probably years later. Here's one of the most interesting and truthful and absolutely bedrock principles you must never forget. God's great love delights to forgive repentant sinners. We know that. He loved the world. He sent his son Jesus to make payment for our sins. But his perfect justice demands that he judge those who refuse his grace and persist in sin. So we have the love and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, and we have the justice and holiness of God on the other end, and both of those are absolutely true. Take God seriously. I know you do, but I'm just saying, take God seriously. I promise you the Lord will intervene in your life this week. Pray for a heart that says, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? I want to learn what you have to teach me because I know that you're my father and you only do what is in my best interest. And that's honor yourself and make me like Jesus. Okay, let's review and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, 
Rejecting God's promises leads to fear, which tempts us to depend on our own plans. Number two, sinful people want a religion that is convenient, comfortable, cheap, and that does not convict them of sin. That is the opposite of Christianity. Number three, God graciously warns people to stop sinning before he judges them for refusing to stop. You know, God is so gracious. He says, don't do this because here's the outcome. Do this because here's the outcome. And he says up front, we have that knowledge. Number four, when God intervenes in your life, be sure to learn the lessons he's teaching. Next, refuse to compromise with evil even when compromise is rewarded. And in an evil culture, compromise is always rewarded. Do not let anyone deceive you into disobeying God, even God's people. That means if you know what God called you to do, then do it and keep doing it. If he wants to change your direction, he'll tell you. He'll let you know. You know that God is perfectly capable of communicating with us, right? Amen? And lastly, rejecting God and refusing to repent always leads to destruction and death. We mentioned uh, when we opened this series that this is going to be largely biographical. So these are real people in real time who made real decisions and who experienced real consequences. And one of the things that I love about the narrative section of the Old Testament, especially the historical section, is they lived lives like we do. They struggled with the same things we do. And in Scripture, you will either see examples, do what they did, because here's what happened, or warnings, don't do what they did. So I'm going to encourage you, Read ahead and ask God to teach you from the lives of people that listen to the Lord and the lives that refuse to listen. Amen? I love you all. Thanks for paying attention. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.